0: Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. The, the story of Hagar and Ishmael figures prominently in our epistle reading this morning. It's a story that's near and dear to my heart. In fact, I actually did my thesis for my Master of Divinity at Liberty University on this particular story which is found in Genesis chapter 16 and 22. But don't worry, I won't read all 65 pages of that for you today. We'll save that for another time. I heard that. Now, one of the reasons that we read Galatians 4, 21 to 31 today is that today is Mothering Sunday. Mothering Sunday is basically British Mother's Day. It in its tradition to visit one's mother church on Mothering Sunday, that is the church in which one was baptized, and make a special offering. It's also a day when domestic servants would be allowed to go back home to visit their parents so that they could go to church with their mothers, often afterwards making simnel cakes, which is a kind of fruit cake, which does not sound very uh, good to me, but to each their own. We wear rose vestments on this day, and I saw a picture uh, yesterday, a priest friend of mine shared it that said, these are rose vestments, not pink, because our Lord didn't pink from the dead on Easter. He rose from the dead. So these are rose vestments, and that signifies that today is a day of celebration. It's a reprieve from the somber season of fasting that is Lent. this Sunday also goes by the name Latare Sunday, which is from the Latin introit of the day, which the first word of the introit is Rejoice. That's what Latare means. Since it's Mothering Sunday, it makes sense then that our epistle would include the story of two mothers, Hagar and Sarah, which point us to the significance of our mother, that is, the church. To understand Paul's reading of the Hagar and Sarah story, it's helpful to step back and review the background underlying the epistle to the Galatians. The Galatian community was ensconced in a large region in southern Asia Minor that had been annexed by the Romans somewhere around 25 B.C. Over their time as Roman subjects, the area became dedicated to the imperial cult. They worshipped the emperor in that area. The Galatian church was founded by Paul probably during his missionary journeys that were detailed in Acts chapter 16 and 18, setting this founding of the community somewhere around 47 or 48 AD. Like many of the communities that Paul established, the Galatians had one big struggle, which was namely that Paul couldn't be everywhere at once. So in his absence, the church in Galatia had been infiltrated by a group of false teachers, a group that we now call the Judaizers. What were these Judaizers teaching in Galatia? Probably they were Jewish Christians who were telling Gentile converts to Christianity that in order for them to be really Christians, these Gentiles had to become Jewish by getting circumcised, by observing Jewish feast days, and following Jewish dietary restrictions. The teachings of the Judaizers... elicited elicited a really visceral opposition from St. Paul who argued in response to them that the church is not an ethnic enclave nor are the rituals of the church ethnocentric. In fact, he emphasizes the point that one does not need to be Jewish in order to be Christian. And the culmination of his argument in Galatians can be found in chapter three, verses 27 to 29. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye all are one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise." So to illustrate his point, in chapter 4, Paul turns to the Old Testament story of Hagar and Sarah, which he tells us he reads allegorically. Now, the story, I think, at least in its context in Genesis, is often misread. Hagar is often viewed as bad or wrong, but she actually tells Israel's story in reverse. She was an Egyptian woman whose name meant sojourner, and she was enslaved to a Hebrew woman named Sarah whose name meant princess. She was given to Abraham by Sarah to be his surrogate wife so that Sarah could, in the words of the, of the Hebrew text, be built up through her servant, which is language that actually parallels Sarah's behavior to Pharaoh's exploitation of the Israelites at the beginning of Exodus. He mistreated them in order that, that Egypt might be built up. After Hagar bore Abraham a son, she was eventually cast out at Sarah's request after Sarah's son, Isaac, had been born. And so Hagar and Ishmael, her son, wandered the desert, almost dying of thirst until God showed her a well that gave them water that saved her and her son. And in the wake of this salvific event, there's this beautiful encounter where Hagar becomes the first character to give God a name. She calls him El Roy, the God who sees me. God brought her then to her homeland around Egypt and caused the flourishing of her progeny, a participation in the promise that God gave Abraham, even in spite of the behavior of Abraham and Sarah. Now, it seems likely that Paul's opponents in Galatia, these Judaizers, employed this story in their teaching. They may have said something like, hey, Galatians, if you become Jewish, you can actually be a better Christian because then you have a genealogical connection to Abraham through Isaac and Israel, the line of the chosen son rather than the line of the illegitimate son. So come become Jewish first and then become a Christian. So Paul engages his interlocutors by reading this story of Hagar and Sarah allegorically. An allegory is when we read something into the text that isn't evident at the literal level of that text. Now, some have speculated that Paul's allegorical reading here is ironic, intended to poke fun at the allegorical rabbinical exegesis that was often employed by his opponents. I don't necessarily think that that's the best read of what he's doing here because I'd argue he employs allegorical reading elsewhere unironically. But I do think he does something pretty genius in our text this morning. Namely, he turns the Judaizer's argument on its head completely. He does this by saying that Hagar stands allegorically not for non-Jews, but for the covenant that was made at Mount Sinai, What is that covenant? Well, that's the covenant God gave to Israel through Moses. She is the Mosaic law. And this law, he argues, only ever leads to the bondage of sin because the law lacks a salvific aspect. This is, of course, not a problem with the law. The law itself is good because God gave it to us. The problem is with our sin. When our sin comes in contact with the law, the law can only ever condemn us. It never gives us a salvific reprieve. So Paul says that to Hagar was born a son of the flesh, Ishmael. And of course, this has kind of a double meaning here. Of course, it can refer to the circumstances that produced Ishmael's birth, namely the fleshly mode of reasoning that was employed by Abraham and Sarah in trying to achieve God's promise of a son without consulting their Lord first, which ended up causing them to engage in some really poor behavior. But also, Ishmael was born of the flesh because he was born through the normal means. There was no divine intervention in his birth like there was with Isaac. So if Hagar was the Mosaic law, Sarah stands not for the earthly Jerusalem, which is a synecdoche for Judaism, but for the heavenly Jerusalem, which Paul says is the mother of us all. And to this end, he quotes Isaiah 54, 1. Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. The new covenant is our mother. Our mother is the church because she administers the sacrament of baptism through which we are born again. So in this allegory in Galatians 4, we have two women, or two mountains, or two covenants that are in seeming diametric opposition. What does this mean? What bearing does this have on the situation in Galatia? Well, Paul tells his Galatian readers an important truth in light of this allegory. All Christians, not just Jewish Christians, are children of the promise like Isaac. The promises that were made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 17 are answered in Christ and his church. So the Christian, whether they're Jewish or Gentile, has a genealogical connection to Abraham through Isaac. It may not necessarily or primarily be a biological connection so much as a spiritual one, but it is a connection nonetheless. And so Paul begins the next chapter in Galatians, Galatians chapter 5, with a remarkable statement that I wish the Book of Common Prayer had retained for this reading. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. In effect, Paul is telling the Galatians that all Christians should live into their primary identity as Christians, sons and daughters of the church, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Now, most of us today are not told by others that we need to be circumcised in order to become Christians. That's a pretty tough sell, in fact. That's not a common heresy anymore, but that Judaizing tendency does exist in some circles. I've actually encountered groups that would say this, but it is uncommon So is this reading then still applicable to us today if we're not being encountered by some neo-Judaizers? I think so, because that warning that we shouldn't fall into bondage but live into the freedom of being children of the new covenant, children of the church, remains pertinent for us all the time. Like I said, the church is our mother because in baptism, we're born again. Further, the church is, the church sustains us by feeding us with the Holy Eucharist and with the Word of God, a feeding that was prefigured in our gospel lesson this morning. So what have we been set free from? From the idea that faith is just a nice thing that we do on Sunday mornings. From the idea that the church is some sort of country club. From the idea that other facets of our identity control who we are from the prioritization of our sex or our class or our ethnicity over the fact that we are in Christ. We have been set free, St. Paul tells us, but this is not a laissez-faire freedom that tells us we can behave however we want. Rather, we have been set free in order to be holy which as Deacon David reminded us last week, consists of a lot more than just obeying the Ten Commandments. In fact, that's a major theme of the book of Galatians. In chapter 5, verses 13 through 14, St. Paul tells them, "'For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another.'" For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And he goes on to say, this I say then, walk in the spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Walking in the spirit is a whole lot more than a mechanistic checking off of our to-do list. Walking in the spirit requires us to have a baptized and sanctified imagination like C.S. Lewis said in the movie yesterday. It requires us to be human, fully human. It requires us to learn from Our Lady, from Mary, the mother of God and our mother who at the Annunciation, which was a feast that we celebrated on Friday said, be it unto me according to thy word. So for today... Since it's Mothering Sunday, it's a good day to call our mothers or to remember our mothers, but it's also a day in which we should reflect on the fact that the church is our mother, and our status is that of children of the promise. What does that mean for us, to be children of the promise? It means, above all things, that we should seek to live out what our baptism says about us, namely that we are in Christ and sealed by the Holy Ghost forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.